Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Our guest on this episode, Eleanor Yanager, teaches medieval and early modern history at the London School of Economics. She's the creator of the blog Going Medieval and the author of The Once and Future Sex, a new book exploring the ideals of womanhood in the medieval period. Her conversation about it with Luke Naylor Perrett is funny, thought-provoking, relevant and very not suitable for kids. You've been warned. Enjoy. I want to start, typical historian, mm. who are our sources, right? So we've got a mm. couple, of, couple of guys. You describe <laughs> medieval thought on women as kind of like a yes and with mm-hmm. the classics. Mm-hmm. We've got some Hippocrates, we've got some Plato, Aristotle, Galen. Yep. Just briefly, what do we get from these guys? So these guys are really the bedrock of how to think about women on, I guess, a natural philosophical level. Uh, you know, not to say scientific, because it's certainly not bloody scientific. But, um, you know, they contribute a, you know, in the case of Hippocrates and Galen, um, humoral theory to the discussion. So, you know, the idea that um, everything corresponds to the four humors, in which are, you know, air, fire, water, and earth. And in the body, that's blood, black bile, yellow bile, phlegm. Everything is either hot, cold, wet, or dry, and so humans have these characteristics, as does everything in the universe. So men are then hot and dry, and women are cold and wet. And this is important because you have philosophical ideas about this. So it kind of runs over into what women's temperaments are like as opposed to men's. Um, And that's where kind of Aristotle and Plato come in. So the the cold and wet nature of women then means, you know, according to Aristotle, that women are basically awful. (laughs) So uh, Aristotle uh, sees women as being inside out men, or sometimes he says deformed men. Um, And so it's his opinion that everyone would be born a man except something goes wrong. And so then women are a kind of wrong version of a man, which means they're garrulous and they're silly and they're illogical and they're sexually rapacious. And, uh, you know, they're just generally kind of unpleasant. I mean, among the insults he hurls at women is that they're more retentive of memory. Which is you throw that bone, yeah. Which is kind of like it, it's funny because it's like, oh yeah, well I guess you're just remembering things, which is it's very funny to me because it, it's sort of like a co- bad comedian's like, well you know, women never forget what you do, am I right? You know, like, yeah. Real take my wives, please stuff from Aristotle. So this is kind of you know, and obviously he's got it from somewhere. Plato had a lot to say on this as well. Plato has a a creation myth wherein the first humans were all men. And then the earth is seen as a moral proving ground, in which case women essentially uh, come into accidents because men who are not very good are forced to reincarnate as women. So every woman that you see is sort of a failed man, but it all does rather the same thing, which is um, it posits that men are the default. You know, and so a, a man is always going to be what a human is meant to be. And women are defined in opposition to that. So women are kind of not men. So men are human and women are sort of not man and they inherit all of the things that are bad about humanity, whereas men inherit all the things that are good. So it just kind of gives you a really negative place to start from in the Middle Ages. So this gets built upon uh, and and you talk about Aquinas and Augustine and and, Mm -hmm. and they're obviously very important. There are a few brief shining lights, right? You have... Mm. um, Hypatia and Hipparchia and, and yep. Hildegard and Christine and, and these moments of resistance mm-hmm. within this hegemon. And I wanted to just ask, how do you as a historian balance the dominant idea of, of romance, of beauty, of womanhood with these like moments of resistance, right? Because you want to give them credence. Yeah. But they are the outlier, right? Yeah, I mean, th- this is the thing that's frustrating about source survival and how the Middle Ages work and privilege and things of this nature. Because it it is certainly the case that we get to hear about 50 times more from men than we do from women. And so what you kind of have to do with that, I think, is take the sources that you see fairly seriously, especially because it's not as though when, you know, you run into Christine de Paisan or you run into Hildegard, it's not as though they're rejecting outright these things that, you know, you and I would consider to be misogynist. So, for example, Hildegard you know, kind of says there are, there's real differences between men and women, but the thing that she does is she posits and that's a good thing and women are good actually, which is nice. 
And Christine de Parizan, the way that she writes about it is, you know, she describes herself as what we would call a bit of a pick me, you know, now where, where initially she was sort of like, yeah, women do suck and men are, are much better because that's just sort of the culture that she was raised in. But then she admits that eventually she was like, but I, it doesn't make sense. You know, just her lived experience was that, well, none of this is true. I don't actually see this behavior on the part of women, really. And it makes her question it. So that's a really valuable source for me because it says that, yeah, there's definitely the social expectation. There's a way of relating to the world that is saying that you need to understand that women are bad, that most women simply accept. But it is possible then to reject that based on your own experiences. So that really, I mean, that's Pater when you're a social historian, right? Uh, because it, it shows that you're not wrong to say, you know, this is kind of like the overarching social principle, uh, but you can see people push back against it. It's just that, you know, the way source survival works and the way that medieval society works, we're really not always able to get to those voices because, you know, women oftentimes, well, most people aren't literate and women are even less likely to be so. Yeah. yeah. Infuriating. Yeah. There's, there's something else as well. That, that comes up, they kept going like, oh, I wish I wish we had one or two sources, mm. which is these, you know, old white dudes will come up with rules mm. based on, you know, seemingly never talking to a woman in their lives. Yeah. And then, you know, I kept going like, but actually, but how did these rules manifest in people's lives, right? Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. rules versus the reality, you know, the sort of the, the zeitgeist versus the everyday acts of resistance. Yep. It must be, you know, you must scream at, you know, I, I want to have talked to a, a medieval peasant woman. I must have wanted to talk to a brewer or something mm. throughout your research to go, did, did you know about this? Did yeah. you believe in this? Did you, you know, engage in this? Yeah, it, it, it's quite frustrating because, you know, um, oftentimes we'll see uh, a lot of times in kind of really patriarchal dominated um, European societies, for example, where it's sort of like, oh, the man knows best and men come home and they don't do any chores. But, you know, speaking as a Slavic person, yeah, but then when you get home, guess who rules the house you know it, it's kind of one of those things where it's like you yeah you can dress it up however you want yeah. but women run the show yeah and i think that there's there's kind of a lot of that in there and th that's a way that i've always kind of you know responded to it just in terms of like you know spending a lot of time in like rural czech republic and stuff like that there are there are ideas uh about how society works but then there's the reality and i kind of is apply that to to a certain extent, but yeah, obviously, the, my number one thing is that I would just like to I just like to talk to a medieval peasant. Yeah, that's all I really want to do because even when we get you know these wonderful glimpses from Christine or from Hildegard, you know these are some of the fanciest women in the world, right? It's like you know here here you go. It's like what does a fancy lady think? You know, it, it's not what does the local butcher's wife think. It's certainly not you know what anyone in a trade thinks. So we only really get to to hear these things from the highest possible echelons of society because that's that's who can read and write and that's who gets passed down to posterity you know and you have to be so exceptional to have even had anyone pay attention to you in the first place that all you get are the outliers and you know just like my god i i, I just want to talk to a weaver or something you know like show me a girl who works in a bathhouse like i just want to be like what's that like spend a lot of time moving water around do you but that's monotonous you know just these things yeah the, the scenes i'm sure that that person saw oh god um, so beauty features a lot mm -hmm. in these writings and also in, in your work. What is beauty, especially when it comes to the kind of the face mm. and, and why, why on earth do we care about Helen of Troy, basically? Yeah, well, this is such an interesting one because so medieval people are, are very cute. You know, if you look at the early medieval period, they don't really describe beauty. You know, and we have very few art sources that survive to us sort of from 7th century, 8th century. They're, they're certainly there, but they're mostly religious and, you know, they're highly stylized. So it doesn't really tell you very much. Um, and, you know, if they're going to describe a beautiful woman, they say she was beautiful. And then, and then they move on, and which is really cute because I, I like how it's sort of a beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You just need to understand that we found her beautiful. And then in the 12th century Renaissance, um, when medieval people really start writing a lot more and doing a lot more art, they then want to classify beauty, which it's very, it's a very medieval <laughs> response to things. Is that, you know, you have to have this, this specific classification about like, well, what is beautiful? So then they go look uh, for examples in the ancient world, because that's how they do everything. You know, it, it, there has to be an ancient antecedent or you can't prove that there is real, you know, it's like us trying to find scientific roots for things now. We'll come on to that, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> so they go find uh, Helen of Troy because they're like, okay, well, who's the most beautiful woman? It's Helen of Troy. And you're not going to get a lot of joy there from ancient sources. It's like, she's blonde. 
that's that's about it you know um and she's very beautiful and she's got white skin you know that's that's what you know so they then kind of um invent what it is to be beautiful and uh, so they kind of get to start from first principles even though they they don't say that that's what they're doing and for them a beautiful woman is blonde so they keep that has an incredibly high forehead that to us is perplexing uh they really like that and um, she can't have a unibrow that's absolutely they, they they make a lot of the fact that there's a space between a woman's eyebrows and and interestingly that the women's uh, eyebrows are high and arched uh which i really love because you know when women were doing their eyebrows really dark and stuff here they'd be like no man ever has cared about a woman's eyebrows and i'm like i think you'll find uh that, that for hundreds of years this was very important um and they have to be black which is odd considering that we're looking for blondes but okay white skin uh red cheeks uh so that they, they always describe snow and roses as a, as a complexion white straight teeth and kind of sort of like pouty lips is what it seems like they're saying but it's difficult because they're always like a mouth like a rosebud what does that mean? Uh, but uh, white skin is really big on it. Eventually, um, it takes them a little while to get to this. They will say that they prefer gray eyes. And a gray like a falcon is, is uh, often the thing. And, uh, and they're very specific about it. Gray is the one, which is funny because we tend to privilege blue eyes, but they don't, they don't really care that much about that. They want, they want gray. And then, you know, there is, it then kind of moves downward to the body. So you have to have a neck like a swan. Although um, the Muslim poets will say like a heron. That's fine. And occasionally you also get um, a, like a pillar or a column. Less, uh, yeah, less cute. Yeah, more yeah. like a neck brace. That yeah. One. yeah. <laughs> and then they have um, kind of white, small shoulders, long arms, uh, long, elegant fingers, small, high breasts, um, a thin waist, a pot belly, thick thighs and a big bum, long legs and small feet. Pot belly, interesting there. Pot belly is really big. Uh, a luscious little belly it was described at once which i really enjoy but i think it's so interesting in all of those smooth white Mm -hmm. you know dainty you might as well just go not poor not poor not Not poor poor, the entire way yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i and that's exactly it is that this beauty ideal obviously just i I hope she doesn't work right that's that's basically it because obviously the minute you go outside you're not going to have white skin any longer um and dainty hands yeah or or dainty hands um certainly not you know in a world where a lot of shoes that you're kind of wearing in the fields and stuff are wooden you're not gonna have cute little white soft feet that's not going to happen and there you know there is a real premium put on softness Interestingly, one one uh, group of people who are considered to be really beautiful, and they will look for beautiful women to take on this role from the peasantry, um, is dairymaids, because um, their hands get used to make butter all day. And so, you know, you kind of have your hands in cream, and it makes your hands really soft and white. And so there's, there's a thing about butter being made better if it's made by beautiful young women. And also, it, it's kind of like one of these things where if your hands are in butter all day, you'll have beautiful hands. That's so, so creepy. It's weird, oh. isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of, you know, this osmosis of good butter through, you, you, you get beauty into the butter. It's gross, but uh, that got cut out of the book, but <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I'm glad that's creepy. Yeah, there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so hair is yeah. interesting mm-hmm. because, I mean, so there's a, there's a history from Penny Howell Jolly who writes on like art, like pubes in art, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this this common idea amongst some sort of feminist discourse recently that that to shave a pube is a 90s thing. Yeah. <laughs> and that like our obsession with pubes generally yeah, is yeah, a yeah. modern thing. Yeah. Not the case, right? Yeah. No, no, no. Medievalists were also obsessed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they remove pubic hair a lot. Um, and it's for this reason that when you tend to see nudes in the medieval period, they, they generally don't have pubes. Like they, they just don't. And it's not really, I don't think, out of a sense of modesty. Um, and, and probably, I, I say this because I've read enough medieval beauty manuals that it talks about depilation for, for pubes. And more specifically there, they kind of recommend shaving or, you know, wax. We know, especially in the Italian lands, is a thing. And it's, real, it's really big in the Italian lands in particular, where at least they're writing about it. Um, there are other depilatory things, you know, for example, the the cosmetic guide that circulates with the trotula and gets called the trotula, but is not the trotula, just to be nice and confusing. It has lots of depilatory creams, but they are, they are really caustic. You know, they, they kind of have like 
acids in them and things and then they're also and i just don't think that anyone's putting those on their pubic area uh but they're they certainly are shaving um and they're this is partially i think because medieval people like most of us uh you know now have a a a real emphasis on youth and and so i think that there's there's a certain kind of thing here about you know looking younger being younger so you know like hair being hairless is still kind of a thing it's probably less so for the legs than it actually is for the pubic area for them so um there's also another element here which comes on throughout the writing and throughout through your work which is um there's a few cycles of sin of you know adam and eve all the way through to jesus mm. that show adam and eve spontaneously sprouting pubes after the fall yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Talk to me about original sin and Eve uh, yeah, in so, this whole world. Yeah, this is this is where all the problems come from, mm. right? So you, you take all of the all of the kind of ancient ideas about you know women being bad, and then you slap some Christianity on the top, and <laughs> Eve is really where it starts. So for them, and especially you know the church fathers, so um, Saint Augustine is big on this. The original sin is sexual in nature. So basically the thing is that when Eve eats from the fruit of knowledge, yes, they become aware that they're naked. But we now kind of go heavy on the awareness of being naked is the problem and and then consequent shame. But for them, the issue is that they're aware that they're naked and it turns them on. So, you know, and and for St. Augustine in particular, he says um, they lose control of their genital members. So, you know, in an ideal world, I in, yeah, I know it's all oh, they're just doing they just things run away from me. Yeah. Again, against your will. Right. And um, so in, in an ideal world, if, if everybody had stayed in the Garden of Eden, it would be sort of like time to procreate. And you would just, you know, think men would think and get an erection and women would think and their vaginas would be, you know, relaxed and moisturized. And then you would just kind of like, bada ba bing, you know, insert tab A to slot B, and then, you know, and you're good to go. And you wouldn't think it would be like, you know, shaking hands. It wouldn't mean anything. But we are now lustful because of the fall. And so we're like, oh, that's really sexy. And, and, and our genitals do things that we don't want them to do. And Augustine really associates shame and sexual shame with this loss of control and, and this fact that you, you can't do anything about, about the, these ideas. And so for them, you know, the, one of the good thing about men is that men are very logical and, and very able to control their sexuality and they're better able to kind of tamp this down, whereas women are illogical, so they just go with it, right? And, um, you know, obviously they just go with it because Eve is the one that ate the stupid fruit and, you know, she's the one who can get talked into anything by a snake. And, you know, and also, you know, for them, there's a real connection between um, the five senses generally in sexuality. So being interested in eating a fruit, you know, that's kind of like linked to gluttony, which is then linked to, to lust. So um, excessive interest in things of the physical world is something that kind of flags you up as being sexual. So liking food, oh, you're like, you know, she's a slut, basically. <laughs> so you mentioned cosmetics, you mentioned mm. hair removal earlier. Um, fashion also falls into this category. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but of course, if you did anything about it, if, yeah. you, if, you, if you weren't born with it, no Maybelline for you. Yeah. It's a case of basically be hot, but be chill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is, uh, this particular one, I got so much stuff uh, taken out by my editor oh, really? because I, I wanted to reference a bunch of pop songs and they were all too old because I'm Aww. old. And I, you well, know, an example. Yeah, I wanted to use um, the streets, uh, you're fit, but you know it. Uh, and I also wanted to use um, One Direction's You Don't Know You're Beautiful. That's not old. That's what I said. But I was told that it was too old. And but, a banger. Yeah, and yeah. a banger. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that there's there's two things going on here. You're just supposed to be beautiful, right? And certainly we, we still have this. But for medieval people also, the just being beautiful, obviously there's a class element to it. But there's also a religious element to it. Which is that uh, beauty is something that is bestowed by God, and it's something that's natural nature being an outflowing from God itself. So you know, it's it's very Thomian. It's like th this is the way of th seeing things. So the more beautiful someone is, the more God loves them, <laughs> you know, and and the more they're they're kind of like in natural harmony uh, with with the divine, right? So to then begin meddling with that and start, you know, I don't know, plucking plucking your eyebrows or plucking your hairline in order to get that high forehead or wearing cosmetics that's cheating 
you know, and you're not, you're not really divine. God doesn't really love you and you're self-obsessed and you're vain, which is, you know, again, one of the seven deadly sins. So you get all of these, um, stern warnings about using makeup or, or plucking your eyebrows or plucking your hairline. Like oftentimes fathers to their daughters kind of like, don't you dare be interested in being hot. Which is interesting because it's like, well, if you're going to marry a mom, let's say good luck, yeah. you know, but, um, they they are they are really insistent that people are much more interested in demure women than hot women. And I'm like, sure. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, they will say, for example, there's there's a um, a hell vision where a man's very beloved, beautiful wife dies, and he pays a monk who's able to kind of like go into the afterworld to go see how she's doing, and the monk comes back and is like, oh, your wife's in hell, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> or purgatory at the very least. And it's like, oh, why is that? And it's like, oh, well, she uh, secretly had been plucking her eyebrows and hairline. And uh, now demons are in hell gnawing at her scalp and gnawing at her eyebrows where she plucked her hair. Because, you know, it's, it's very bad to attempt to live up to this incredibly rigid beauty standard that is absolutely surrounding every single woman. But if you ever try to look like that, then you're faking it. You're bad. And also, you're just not supposed to care. You're supposed to just walk around and, and like, oh, I, am I beautiful? How would I possibly know? Even though I live in a society that says that the most important thing about women is that they're beautiful and that you're divine if you are. Uh, but I shouldn't know that because divine people aren't interested, you know, it, and it's obviously on its face, just completely impossible, right? But we're still doing that. I mean, maybe minus the God thing, right? Minus the God. Yeah. Two things. Firstly, I want to see on every, like eyebrow plucking advert uh, like may cause demons to yeah, right. like nowadays <laughs> yeah, 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 i think yeah, yeah. i'm so yeah. into that the other one is you know you, you mentioned sort of the male control the fathers to daughters mm. that moment in a rom-com where the man removes the the bun and the <gasps> yeah it takes the, the glasses it takes off. glass off and mm-hmm. a already beautiful you just didn't know it but yeah. b the man fixes it for you yeah. very medieval yeah, 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 exactly. Because w- overall with all of this the idea is that men are ought to be in control of women and you really need to sort of be in control of women because, uh, well, you know, they're these sexually rapacious beings and they don't know. They don't know what, what is for their own good, right? So one of the sources that I use really extensively in here is the book of the Knight of the Tower of Landry, where he is writing advice for his daughters. And he's like, I loved your mom very much. Is their mom is dead. And then she was beautiful and she was wonderful and she was such a great wife and she was completely perfect. Um, and so here's how to be like her. And it, so it's this sort of guide for what he thinks an ideal woman should be. And it's just so funny to kind of consider that like a man would have any bloody idea what to do. But, you, you know, you see this all the time. You'll see advice to fathers, for example, if they're concerned that their daughters or indeed wife or any woman in their care is, is out kind of flirting with other men, you should like burn their clothes and cut their hair off. Which is normal. Yeah, which is normal, right? So it just, but the idea is that like you are, you are, they are your property. I mean, just straight up, they're your property. And so you need to make sure that they are abiding by, you know, kind of polite rules. And that means that they should never be bringing untoward male attention to themselves. You know, you need to be mediating their marriages. You need to be in control of them until such time as then their ownership passes to the husband, right? And so one of the things that you need to do is make sure they are they are not attempting to adhere to beauty standards because it's going to give everyone the wrong impression, right? We'd hate to do that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and let, let, their, let their husbands figure out their heart, right? So... Speaking of wrong impression, mm. going back to beauty standards, mm-hmm. um, I have a meme for you. Oh, or rather brilliant. a thing on Twitter. <laughs> and, I, and I wanted you to just confirm or deny whether or not this was part of the beauty standard. Could you, could you read it out? For okay, me? so it's, uh, it says, uh, medieval Europeans basically never bathed, but changed clothes frequently enough to absorb most of the grime. This is accompanied by um, an early modern picture. Uh, so, <laughs> That's such a burn. Which, which is interesting. <laughs> So it's very funny uh, because uh, they're saying weird history now. This this person, weird history, um, is correct in that in the 17th century and 18th century, that is true. But this person doesn't know when the medieval period is. Such a terrible mistake. And you, you get that all the time. You get that all the time where people simply think medieval means old. They kind of think medieval means uh, before the Victorians. So, um, you know, they might think that I don't know, the 18th century is medieval because they just don't know. So like I've seen, uh, there was for a while, um, 
if you if you googled medieval and bathing for a while there was an article that was like yahoo or something and they're like 17 gross facts about medieval people and it had a picture of kirsten dunce's marie antoinette as like the clickbait <laughs> very like, late medieval and i'm like that's modern um so the thing yeah the thing about about this is that people are not wrong in that this was certainly something that came in the 16th and 17th centuries where the ideal of how one became clean changes over to being based on clothing and uh, so what happens is this is another form of conspicuous consumption um it's sort of like well you change clothes seven times a day and if you just keep doing that it keeps you smelling fresh and people have tested this like historians have tested this it's, it's actually true like if you because if you're just kind of like changing clothes and changing clothes and changing clothes they will absorb a lot of your sweat and things like that and so it's kind of like you're using that as a sponge and so this is like why there's this um fascination with big old white lace ruffs in the early modern period because if you're covered in clean white cloth it shows that you yourself are clean and again it, it's one of these things that it kind of excludes the poorer classes right because the poorer classes are going to be working in things they can't have perfectly white lace all over themselves because you know they're doing a goddamn job <laughs> you know so that's not going to help um so so this did is medieval people bathe medieval people bathed all the time right i mean so and this is the thing to, to keep in mind is that medieval people are well if you're rich you're probably bathing daily because lucky you you know you have someone to cart water for you right uh the majority of medieval people are kind of doing you know the equivalent of a shower every day where they get a ewer of water warm it up they sponge themselves down they, they clean off while standing in kind of a basin and then they they get out there and then do their thing and then they'll probably bathe once a week like which is heat a bunch of water over fire pour it in a big wooden and do that um in the summer months you can go swimming all the time and then that does it um if you live in cities or in towns there's probably a bathhouse that you will avail yourself of um cities will have dozens of them you know there's just tons of bathhouses everywhere and for them it's kind of like going to the spa but for bathing more particularly um so you know again obviously it's a little bit easier if you've got a lot of money because you can pay to have a bath all the time but it's it's absolutely not out of the ordinary and indeed medieval people are pretty obsessed with bathing because again they, they've got the cleanliness is next to godliness thing you occasionally get sources that say medieval people didn't bathe but they're usually about saints and it's proof of the saints holiness they're like oh they're making themselves really uncomfortable it's really gross so they're like rejecting the pleasures of the flesh one of the pleasures of the flesh being being very clean right you know because don't we all love bathing like isn't it nice to to bathe um so when you see that it's showing that a saint doesn't care about their corporeal comfort and that they're more focused on heaven so it's absolutely not true like at all whatsoever of any europeans some people kind of point to there's one early english source that talks about how um english women are going for viking men and they're like and viking men bathe all the time and you know it's seen as very sexy and i, I always say yeah but that's not really about how medieval people like vikings bathed a lot it's about how maybe english people weren't and like you really can't go around saying that English standards are normal for Europe because England's a bit of a backwater. I love when yeah you say that a lot, and I think that's um completely yeah. not. Relatable. And I will never stop. <laughs> so. um, you mentioned like carting water around, and I think mm -hmm. you know um, women's work features heavily in your yeah. in your book. Going back to beauty standards, mm -hmm. it just sort of dawned on me that that a lot of medieval women would have been shredded, would have been like really strong. oh yeah ripped yeah like well, tell me a little bit about that, and and also just generally why we have this idea that women didn't work yeah it's yeah so i mean carting water is still feminized labor you know like in in um places especially in the global south that don't have uh plumbing it's it, this is just work for women you know which is why access to water is a feminist issue but uh, they're kind of carrying around all sorts of things you know they're they're doing farm work they're they're you know to do laundry you have to carry all this wet cloth around it's really really heavy so peasant women are usually pretty ripped um which is why the beauty standards are kind of like oh i want long delicate arms and beautiful fingers and a pot belly right because that means that you're not you're not doing physical labor like everybody else is right um, and so that is an expressly classed thing. So you're going to burn that off if you're out in the fields, right? So that, that is why they're always making this big deal out of all of this. And I find it really important to kind of uh, point that out because, you know, now our, especially in the global north, what we consider work to be has really shifted. So a lot of us have like office jobs, you know, we've got email jobs. Um, and that means that you're not going to be shredded if you don't do something about it, if you don't go to the gym or something, but it's exactly the opposite for them. And so it's always going to be 
the thing that is most difficult is going to be the thing that's beautiful, right? The thing that the fewest number of people can achieve is what is considered beautiful. Um, and we just kind of switch that around all the time. But um, yeah, as regards uh, women in work, it, it's quite an interesting one because it's such an incredibly modern thing to think that women were not working. You know, it, it's incredibly bourgeois and it's incredibly modern. You know, the entire reason to sort of get married other than, you know, to have a sexual outlet and have children for men is that you've got somebody helping around the house. And and I don't just mean like with domestic chores, because obviously d women are doing domestic chores. And of course, there's a whole conversation that one could have about how domestic labor certainly is labor or reproductive labor is labor. And women are doing this, but they also have jobs, right? Um, so they're they're taking care of all the cooking and the cleaning and the childcare. But on top of that, they are doing everything that men do. Just not to put too fine a point on it, but you name it, they're doing it. So um, in terms of farm work, there are jobs that would be more gendered one way or another. Like It's more common that men would do plowing. But if you've got a really small family or you don't have somebody to help out or, you know, say you're a single woman, you'll plow on your own. That's fine. Um, and that's kind of like the one that that's hardest. Right. But, the, you know, they're sowing crops and bringing them in and. Animal husbandry is generally a little more feminized. So, you know, you're the one who looks after the animals. Or you're the one who milks the cows, things like that. You name it on the farm, women are doing it. And that's also true of, uh, you know, in cities. So um, by the time you get up to the level of sort of like the bourgeois and like guild members and things like that, uh, women are doing all the same work that men are doing. And then on top of that, they are responsible for bookkeeping. And that is very specifically feminized labor. This is really interesting. I was talking about this um, to my students a few weeks ago, and one of my students said, "Oh yeah, well, what do you do about the fact how do they how do they square the fact that you know maths are really hard, but women are women are the ones who are responsible for them?" And I'm like, "Oh, socially, they didn't think maths were really hard." And my students were all like, "Oh," and I was like, "Yeah, you know, you say that maths are really hard now because it's masculinized, and if something ha if men do it, then it must be really complex. It must be really hard to do it." And, but it's it's not, you know, we, and we now tell girls that they're not as good at maths. And then we say maths is really difficult. Uh, and medieval people just didn't think of it that way. They're like, it's incredibly simple. Women can do it. And it's, it's, it's just a social construct, which I find really amazing. Well, you but, mentioned that in computing yeah. as well, right? Computing yeah. used to be a feminized thing. Yeah, and because it was really simple. You know, oh, it's just a bunch of equations, you know. And, uh, you know, the minute men overtake women in an industry, it becomes very, oh, very complex. And it's better very, paid. Very hard and better paid. And if women overtake men, it becomes very easy and poorly paid. Uh, so see universities for more information. <laughs> um, and uh, it's so it, it's kind of like one of these specific things where you're always going to have a woman who is, say, you're a tanner. She's going to help out with all the leather making and things, but she's also the one that runs the books. And then, you know, it is important to think, you know, obviously it's probably the easiest work, in my opinion, although it's uh, quite dangerous. You know, nobility and queens and things, they're, they're engaged in a job. And, you know, it, it is diplomacy. It is kind of really high level stuff. They lend a lot of money back and forth. And um, that's that's quite uh, common for women to be doing money lending. But they they are also, you know, representatives of whole kingdoms. They they do go on missions. They do kind of move things around. And there's all the kinds of very interesting uh, soft power that they wield. So, you know, doing things where they interface with the church or they, um, you know, for example, Anne of Bohemia is big on representing the individuals of London because her husband's an idiot <laughs> and is constantly uh, fighting with London. And she's the one who kind of like represents the interest of the Londoners. Uh, so you have all these kind of really high level political things that are going on that women are responsible for as well. Um, but interestingly, we tend to downplay that because we say that, oh, you know, the only kind of regal power that counts is like, do you have an army? You know, and then sometimes women do. I was about to say, you know yeah. I mean, like, sometimes they do, to, like, to be fair. Um, and I, I think that it is important to talk about the fact that women do end up on the battlefield and women are generals and, you know, women do lead campaigns. Uh, but I also think that sometimes we privilege that too much. You know, we, we say we go looking for women doing what men do because what men do is the most important thing. Right. And I think that it's it's important to kind of flag up that even if all you're doing is delivering a note, that is still, you know, diplomacy, right? 
Very much so. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, a while ago, you, you said, obviously, one of the reasons to marry is to have babies. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about baby making a little bit. Ugh. And now, I cannot express how... I learned in this book how how insatiably horny women were in the medieval mind. Oh, my Lord, yeah. Extraordinary. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, talk to me a little bit about um, not only the fact that women, women be thinking about sex all the time. They do. But also that that was considered to be basically like poison and and yeah so um obviously women are just insatiably horny and there's nothing that anybody can do about that right uh in the first place it's just so you name it that they are going to be trying to have sex and you know there, there are a couple of proofs of this right so um one is that women will still be horny even if they're on their periods or they're pregnant or they're breastfeeding or you know all these times when it's more difficult to get pregnant not to say impossible but more difficult and also they're like, oh, and women are interested in sex for a lot longer than men are. So, you know, they they might still want more sex once the man is done. So there's also this idea that women are particularly interested in having sex with multiple partners because they're completely insatiable. It's interesting because there's a one, I forget who said this exactly, but I love it, where he likens a woman to wet wood. Women's passion is like wet wood in that it takes a little bit for longer for it to get going, but it burns hotter and longer if it does. So, you know, women are, are kind of like into forest fires and things like this, where it's just like it's impossible to put them out. It just starts raging. Right. And so, you know, you definitely know that they're incredibly horny because of all of these things. Right. Um, and it also relates more specifically to their humoral nature, because since they are cold and wet, Women are essentially like lizards, but for sex. Uh, so it's like they, they want, sex warms women up. Um, and it, not only uh, the actual action of sex, but and like the sort of the fricative nature of having sex warms women up, uh, but also um, semen in particular, because since semen is, is seen as like the most masculine possible essence, it's very hot and dry. And so women want it because it will warm them up. And so, you know, there are certain people, for example, that say that women experience essentially orgasms twice while having sex. One, when they ejaculate, because it's posited that women ejaculate during orgasm, um, and also when men ejaculate. And they say that also they can kind of like feel the motion of uh, of semen and, and that like that warms like them up. Like a little vibrator. Like, yeah, like tiny little vibrators. And so women, so women are like massively horny because they just experience more pleasure than men do during sex. They're just more into sex than men are, um, and they like it more. So then there's also part of the reason that this is, is poisonous is obviously that sex is very bad, you know, in, in the Christian imagination, certainly. But it's important to point out that in the ancient world, it was also very bad because, because fellas is it gay to have sex with women essentially because the more you have sex the more of your sperm you lose and this feminizes you because the hot and dry element of your sperm keeps you very manly so if you're ejaculating all the time you become colder and wetter and colder and wetter and more like a woman whereas women who are taking on all the semen become hotter and drier and more like a man so then it's worried that you will become like a woman and you'll want to have more sex because you've become cold and wet and you might even dun 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 end up having sex with men <gasps> like a woman you know which is very and, because and the, it's classical greeks never did that no 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 no, no. and it, which is quite funny because they'll do it but it's also like this this thing about like you know there's the kind of like the you know age gap discourse that you could have here and then like that makes it okay whereas if it's like two older guys it's like ugh. Ew, <laughs> kind of kind of thing, uh, which which is quite funny. Um, so I mean, although obviously there was a lot of that going on as well, but they they are still critical of it as well, and I think that's you know it's interesting from a philosophical level. They still criticize it, you know. So linked to this this dangerousness of of sex, you very helpfully lay out a set of conditions mm. as to when not to have sex. So so we're going to go very quickly, quick fire <laughs> round. Yeah, you're going to tell me. Whether it's it's okay or whether it's yeah. hell, this is jail. Okay. Okay. So, can you have sex in order to have kids? Yes. 
For fun? No. Missionary? Yes. Anything other than missionary? No. <laughs> Wednesdays? No. Fridays? No. Saturdays? No. Sundays? No. Naked? No. Being too attracted to each other and somehow kissing one another? No. Okay. In the daytime? <laughs> no. During menstruation? No. Pregnancy? No. Breastfeeding? No. Lent? No. Advent? No. Penis and vagina sex? Yes. Anything else? No. <laughs> Dry humping? No. Engage in the least sexy sex possible and then getting pregnant and moving on. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you for clearing that up. And also, just to be clear, mm. you better be married. Oh my God, I didn't even... <laughs> like, because, because, you know, you, you could have some really, um, uh, like, really business-like penis and vagina sex and be trying to get pregnant. But if you're not married, it's still bad. Sounds like a lot of fun. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So, so in order to, to, to get married, you have to pick up the chick. Yeah. And yeah. you introduce me to the best dude uh, andreas capellanus oh, he's such a dude talk to me about this guy oh this fucking guy uh i'm obsessed with this man um so funny his as the name indicates um he's a chaplain which means that he's a member of the clergy but he's got some ideas about uh how it is that you ought to pick up on ladies um and he writes this whole book which is called de amore which we kind of call the art of courtly love um and he allegedly writes it for a friend of his who is like lovesick and he says okay well i'm a oh yeah i see you're lovesick let me tell you how to pick up on chicks and then he writes this this huge book um and it's got all sorts of things um including uh model dialogues of how to pick up on chicks just kind of rules for for picking up um and also just kind of describing what love is uh which is uh, is an inborn suffering it's like love is love is pain baby uh, and it, it's kind of like you, you get love at first sight and you get horny for a chick and then you pine for her and like that's that's what love is essentially um, and it, he says that, you know, it has to always be increasing or decreasing, you know, or it's not love. It can never be static. And there, there's a just, there's all kinds of rules. Quite interesting. I mean, yeah. also, I, I, I learned that um, he also talked about some bases, some mm. degrees. Yeah. Which, you know, potentially there were four of them. So, so who knows if that has. Yeah, I know, right. Has that, has that changed at all? Hmm. It, it became, it became uh, the early baseball. Listen, yeah. I have one of these dialogues. Okay, go, thought, great. If you, could, if you could be the man. Okay, I'll be the man. And, yep. I'll, and I'll be. The, so, this is uh, the fourth dialogue. A nobleman speaks to the woman of the middle class. Yeah. So, and that's the thing is that he, he separates all of his dialogues out by classes speaking to classes. So, there's middle class, lower nobility, and upper mobility. Someone say intersectionality? Oh. I know. Woo. Oh. So, oh. Okay. Right, the man says. If then you send me away without the hope of your love, you will drive me to an early death, after which none of your remedies will do any good, and so you may be called a homicide. I have no desire to commit a homicide, says the woman, but you can have no reason to deny me a chance to deliberate, because according to the saying of a certain wise man, whatever is done after deliberation does not need to be repented of in shame, but stands forever. The man says, I cannot refuse you the chance to deliberate, but I shall never cease to pray God earnestly to make you love the man you should. And I say, if, if I should choose to devote myself to love, you may know of a certainty that I will try, so far as I can, to choose the solaces of the man who is preferable. There is no doubt that you have a free right to choose which one you will love, but I shall never cease to serve you and on your account to offer to do everything I can for everybody. If you really intend to do what you say you propose to, it can hardly be that you will not be abundantly rewarded either by me or by some other woman. God grant that your words express that you really feel. I may seem to depart from you in the body, but in my heart I shall always be bound to you. Right, come on. This is, <laughs> it's this so is coercive. some soft boy stuff, right? <laughs> it's so bad. It's like, yeah, it's, uh, it's incredibly, it's, it's very funny because, uh, you know, this now I don't think would fly. But it, but it is so coercive at the same time, you know, to, that I'm like, oh, I will die. Girl, I'm going to just die. It's that's some like real blue balls kind of stuff. And then like, oh, well, I guess you have free will, but you should. Right. You should uh, be in love with me, which is interesting. It is very much kind of like a talking about the friend zone, sort of, right? Yeah. You know, like, oh, yeah, well, I guess that you can choose, but really. It's the you illusion know, of control. And this, this whole service thing of, like, who's doing things for you? Who is, who is the one who is actually going out of their way to do X, Y, and Z? Right. So you make a comparison to pickup artists with mm -hmm. Andreas. Um, I think it's definitely a kind of incel vibe there. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, we do like to compare ourselves to medievalists mm -hmm. we, we have been doing mm -hmm. it for fun mm -hmm. and i think in fact I, I have you got into a twitter debate with someone recently or, or released one-sided twitter uh, debate sounds like me <laughs> um in which 
someone said, oh, but they did, they did birth so much better back in the day. Oh God, yeah. And, and like, we can go too far the other way and say that actually things are so much worse nowadays. Mm-mm. That's not what you're saying here, right? Yeah, that's not what I'm saying at all. Yeah, so it, it was interesting. The woman said that like, we shouldn't give birth in hospitals because it makes means that we associate- We dread. We, we, we associate birth with dread and pain. And I'm like, girl, <laughs> that's, hmm, yeah, that's, you know, as though in the medieval period, people weren't associating birth with dread and pain, which they absolutely were. And you know, one of the reasons why you see women be kind of like, about, about love affairs and these sort of things is, well, yeah, like they might get pregnant and then fucking die. 20 to 50%, right? Yeah, like it's huge. It's huge the number of women that die in childbirth or the number of children. Children, infants. You know, everybody's dying and it is incredibly and intensely painful. And, you know, it's, I think it's a really interesting thing. You know, I think that there there are discussions to be had about like the medicalization of, of birth, sure. But frankly, I think it's really dangerous to not talk about how dangerous childbirth is. And I think actually, fundamentally, it's a, it's not it's not a feminist argument that that one can make because I think glossing over it is really dangerous. You know, acting as though oh yeah, well, birth is just this wonderful thing and it's just absolutely beautiful. You know, there's this terrible conspiracy of silence about what it actually means and how you are gambling with your life when when you do it. And medieval women are not under any such illusions you know everybody knows that birth is incredibly risky uh, very dangerous and terribly painful and you know talking about that openly i think is actually quite revolutionary anymore where you know we have this kind of uh, complex way of thinking about children now you know like it, it's very new this whole oh the most important relationship in your life is with your children and like that's real love and you'll never experience real love until you you have children and like a, go give birth give birth give birth give birth <laughs> And I mean, I think that part of that is kind of like a, it, it's certainly in reaction to falling birth rates in a lot of the global north. And it's certainly also um, a, you know, a reactionary uh, kind of a vibe in terms of, you know, many women taking control of their fertility and saying, okay, well, this, this is a choice I'm going to make. And so this repeated, oh, well, childbirth isn't that bad. Actually, it's really beautiful. No, you're, you're fine. Oh, no. And then you definitely have to have all these children. It's it's really interesting because, you know, medieval women would be absolutely stoked to get an epidural. Like, what are you talking about? Like, they, they'd be like, woohoo, that's uh, fantastic. I, like, I love this for me uh, to, to not be in this much pain. Um, and, you know, it's fantastic that our uh, mortality rates from birth have dropped considerably. But I, also, it's, you know, fundamentally, well, let's be honest, a bit of a racist position as well, because we know that birth outcomes for black and indigenous women uh, and women of color are are much higher. They, you know, they they're much more likely to die. They have much worse outcomes because you know they, because their pain isn't believed, right? right? Because they, you know it's fundamentally really easy for us to act as though women are hysterical if they talk about how awful and and, and difficult childbirth is. You know, and and I I think that. You know, we're doing medieval women a disservice if we act as though, oh, it's, it's just all a breeze and you just just jump in, you know, the, the birthing pond and have yourself a mystical experience. It's ridiculous, you know. So just as a medieval woman would love to have an epidural, you say in, in, the, in the book, it's, it's not as easy as saying things were so much better than or so much worse. Mm. It's just that things have shifted, things have, things have warped. Mm. There's a really interesting sleight of hand that you do where you say, you know, there's a replacing of God's with a kind of like evolutionary biology mm. in how we view women. Mm-hmm. Simon Baron Cohen takes it a little bit of flack in your book, which I mm. think is very interesting, especially when it comes to kind of gender roles being natural, biological, yeah. and body types. We like certain body types because they're natural biological. Could you just talk about that swap, God, God for biology? Yeah, I mean, this is really the Enlightenment's fault. Um, so, you know, it Rousseau has a lot to answer for. Um, and and but there, is, there is this sort of thing, you know, where they're the moving away, moving away from um, religious ideals for everything and moving towards scientific ideals. And it's incredible because we did that, but when we didn't change anything, you know, it, 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 which is quite funny. It's like, oh, so now we have to find scientific reasons for why women are second-class citizens, because it's absolutely essential that women remain second-class citizens, but you've got to find science about it. So here we go. Um, and within that, you have the same kind of emphasis on the natural being correct and good, right? So in terms of beauty standards, it's kind of like, oh, well, you should naturally be beautiful because that's scientific. You were simply born this way. And I'm really obsessed in particular with um, Evo psychologists on this one. Um, I was told I was talking too much about Evo psychologists and I'm like, but I hate them. 
and like much of it was kind of like cut out but but, but they do take yeah. a kind of priestly role in our society they like, do we yeah. go why do we like big hips let's go to the evo psychologist exactly yeah. and and the evo psychologist will say oh well we've always liked hourglass figures because it it indicates uh, you know it, it's hilarious what hourglass figures have been said to do it's like it indicates that, that women are young it indicates like a birthing outcomes not pregnant not another, pregnant yeah. is another one and they're like so people have always liked hourglass figures and that's why scientifically this makes my dick hard and it's like well no because medieval people didn't think that was hot at all medieval people wanted pear shapes you know and they want to frankly the way that they depict women if i post pictures of you know medieval women on twitter people always say why is she pregnant and i'm like she's not she's hot right faces also look a little bit alien yeah yeah yeah, like really high um and it's certainly not something that we would really kind of privilege anymore and so the idea that it's just incredibly funny this idea that there's always been one way to be attractive and that scientifically you know that at a genetic level we understand what that is and you know just a cursory look at, at the past would show you this. But I mean, even worldwide, you know, no one agrees on, on what is beautiful worldwide. The, the only um, universal beauty standards are uh, cleanliness um, and good skin. And that's it. Another theme that I think is really, really interesting in your closing conclusion is the idea that some of the views on women are very similar. It's just that there's more cultural gaslighting going on mm-hmm. you talk about how it never used to be the case that women should look forward to marriage it was just something they did yeah the idea that some women like wealthy women could maybe attain some of these standards but the poor women were never meant to yeah and yet now poor women are told that they have to be as attractive as someone who's a billionaire Can you talk to me about that sort of like that mass cultural yeah. gaslighting that we seem to have now and not yeah, it's it's a really interesting one, right? You know that you know the springing up of the of the wedding industrial complex is something that is apt that I'm I'm quite obsessed with. You know this idea that you know this is the most important day of your life underlined, which is kind of funny because medieval people like you went yeah you went to church and you got married. Hmm. I like sure if you were a king or a princess there was then like a big feast, but that was because you're celebrating a big business deal, right? It's not because like oh well, we'll just like look at all the love, you know, and ordinary people you know yeah they'll have a party or something for the same reason but it's no one is talking about you know the most important day of your life there's no such thing as a bloody wedding dress you know there's like they're, they're, all these things are simply not extant and um, and now you know there's this like express kind of like capitalist thing beyond it where it's like you have to spend this much money you know this is the the amount of money that you need to spend and you need to do this excessive consumption on this day to kind of like seal the fact that you're married and, you know, marriage is just kind of the assumed state of women in the medieval period. Like, that's what you were going to do. You were going to get married. You were going to be a wife and mother. And I would say that that remains, you know, the expectation of most women. But then on top of it, you have these kind of layers and layers about what it is, you're, how you're supposed to consume for that, you know. I mean, we see that even now extending into motherhood, you know, with um, really over-the-top baby showers happening. Or now, I mean, my God, gender reveal parties. So new. New. So new. And you've got to spend all of this money and, like, do somewhere and, like, start a house fire or something. You know, I don't know. Um, so there there are all of these specific things that we keep we keep adding more and more spending to the top of it. And then certainly with beauty standards, it's quite interesting now because, yeah, we, we're all meant to meet them. You know, everyone universally is meant to meet them. And then we also have a real kind of classed way of looking at that. So, for example, one of the expectations now is that one should have tan skin because, um, you know, it shows that you're on holiday. Right. You know, it's you're at leisure time. And, you know, if you're in if you're like us and you're here in London and you don't get a lot of sun, you know, you, you go get a tan. But then there's a right way to be tan. Right. Because the wrong way to be tan is to use fake tan cream. And be orange like low class girls, you know, and then that is, you know, again, to quote the streets, bit too much fake tan, but yeah, you score high, right? Like, so there we have this kind of specific thing about being, you know, the wrong kind of tan. And, or, you know, you're supposed to wear some makeup, but not too much makeup. You're supposed to, well, and now we've just changed. Um, I've, I've just written about this recently for, like, you know, we've just changed our beauty standards again. So, you know, we were at the like extreme hourglass, like, please Kardashian yourself out. And, uh, you know, because there there are certain people who could afford like radical plastic surgery to give themselves, you know, huge bumps. Uh, and now suddenly the Kardashians have had all their implants removed and they're they're thinning. I mean, the, they say that they haven't, but hmm, cute. And uh, and suddenly they're all like razor thin again. And, and, you know, one of the things that was happening there was that plastic surgery was becoming increasingly affordable. 
So, you know, average women could go get a Brazilian butt lift at a boob job and, you know, some liposuction. And, and then so now it's no longer attractive. Right. So the minute that everyone can universally attain a particular kind of beauty standard, it changes again. And, you know, being thin is, you know, an incredibly difficult one um, in, in a world with a lot of sedentary jobs. Um, and, you know, if you have a private chef and, you know, or, or there's, a, there's this new drug. Have you heard about this? Azempic. Yeah. yeah, which is supposed to be for diabetics. But uh, rich people are paying like it's, it's like six thousand dollars a month in, in the States. And if you inject yourself with it, your pancreas says, oh, you're not actually hungry. And then you can become razor thin. So it's like they're stealing drugs. From uh, from uh, diabetic people, uh, you know, to the tune of like thousands upon thousands of dollars every year, and it's just and so that's the new beauty standard, right? And it's it's insane. It's just you know. Two final questions. Mm. Um, penultimately, I wondered. I've seen on online, and, and this is my fault for being online, but that <laughs> that this that sort of adjacent style of history is being borrowed by. TERFs, but like yeah. trans exclusion radical yeah. feminists, mm -hmm. to say that trans people are brand new yeah. and that women can be traced and be recognized through history. Right. Um, sort of in advance of this being done to any of your work, which I don't know if it has, just what's a rebuttal to that, to this idea that firstly trans people are, are brand new in history and that mm. women are this thing that is concrete that we can trace and empathize with easily. Yeah, I mean, so in the first place, uh, trans people existed, the, like the end. <laughs> and um, they, they show up rather a lot um, in the medieval period. Uh, interestingly, uh, trans mask people are really celebrated. Um, you know, so it's it's a sign of sainthood a lot of the time, and it's something that will that comes up fairly commonly in monasteries, in particular, where they'll, they'll find out that Brother Bernard was actually, well, yeah, was was not cis. You know, like when 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 he dies, and no one ever kind of, and not only did no one kind of suspect anything, quote unquote, but when they find out, they're like, it's a miracle. He was so holy that he managed to transcend his femininity, you know, because it's a good thing to not be a woman, right? So uh, it's a good thing to not be a woman. And so if you can be a trans, if you can be trans, that's fantastic. And we certainly have examples of saints. I think it's St. Wilgefortis or something like that. St. Wilgefortis uh, spontaneously grows a beard to get out of marriage so that, you know, she can be dedicated to God, right? So there, there's a lot of celebration of trans mask people. Uh, trans women certainly come up in the the record a lot. Um, the famous, the quite famous London girl is um, Eleanor Reichner. Shout out to Eleanor's. Um, and so Eleanor um, is found doing sex work kind of over by the Tower of London, where you ought not to do sex work because you're supposed to be doing sex work either in the in the stews over in South Bank or on Cock Lane or on Grope Cunt Lane. Um, and so she gets hauled in for that. And hilariously, they're just kind of like, girl, what's going on with you? And they, and they just kind of like have her in for a gossip and they're like, tell me about your deal. And then she's like, oh yeah, well, I, I like transitioned up in Oxford at like this bar full of, uh, there's a, there is an inn full of trans girls who are kind of like also running a brothel. And she's like, yeah, and they showed me how to do it. And then, then I moved down to London, you know, bright lights, big city, you know, -ah, you know, and, and it's hilarious because she's also kind of like running, uh, she's running crimes where she's like, um, stealing the wife's clothes from John's. And then like, and then she's like, what are you going to tell your, you're going to tell your wife? You're going to tell your wife? What are you going to do? You're going to call the cops? You know? And it's, it's very funny. Uh, so that like, we're, we're not exactly sure what happens to her, but you know, mostly what they're, they're kind of like, Oh, this is really interesting. You know? And then they, they aren't like, Oh, this is an abomination. And you know, you're going to be killed or something. That's not the way that they relate to it at all. So we certainly know that trans women around the shop, like multiple trans women and everyone is just like, huh, get a load of that, you know? And, and they just kind of move on with their lives. But I mean, I, I suppose also just, you, this the, one of the things that I really kind of reject about the TERFs thinking about women is the biological essentialism of it. And especially really relating to, you know, like, let's get down to it. You know, they, they desire their own oppression as though it was their salvation. You know, uh, like it's, it's very Spinoza in this whole thing, you know, like uh, so they feel as though their experience of being mothers because on often these women are mothers and the horror of childbirth which they're they're pretty clear on you know the horror of childbirth and the pain and you know all like um, the uneven distribution of household chores they relate to that as being a biologically essential and an essential part of womanhood which it isn't <laughs> you know all of these things are choices you know all of these things are choices sure if you really do wish to be a mother and you really do wish it to be your own child as opposed to adopting, you know, 
then yeah, you're going to have to go through some pain. But but that's not an essential experience of womanhood. You don't actually have to be a mother. You know, it like and that doesn't that isn't the thing that makes you a mother. You know, um, the, the, this is not something that you have to that agree with. Also, you know, certainly in terms of if we're talking about chores around the house, sounds like you are just with someone who's a real prick. You know, like why don't you just like do some like have him do some goddamn chores? Like it, it isn't actually biological. And sure, that's an unfair way that society has organized itself. But you can just not do that. You know. Like you don't actually have to take social cues as necessary. I mean, and this is the entire point of this this stupid book. It's like, yeah, there there are there are things that society tells us women should do, but those are social constructs, and you don't actually have to do them if you don't want to. I mean, there's a whole side rant here too about you know the idea that women are necessarily weak and women are necessarily small, and every time we see a man, we're in danger and we're all very scared, you know, and and which is just insulting uh you know or the idea that women are not like you know women professional athletes are threatened by trans women or something like that which is ridiculous you know as though all women are necessarily worse at athletics than all men and it's just, oh it it drives me to distraction um and i, I really dislike it because it, it there are no historical antecedents for this except for the social ones and if it's just social we can change it right that's the entire bloody point it isn't it isn't inbuilt in us from a scientific standpoint that things have to be this way and you know this is the enlightenment's fault you know the the idea that science proves why society has been set up this way and it is simply not the case it's not i truly think if if, if everyone starting by reading a book but then generally looked back mm. and saw how much has changed or how much the justification has changed the future becomes more changeable as well absolutely yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's rather the point of, of doing history, is that if we can understand how it is that we've got to a certain place, then that means that we can critique it. You know, I think that there is a, a way of relating to the world as though everything is always inevitable and things are always going to end up this way. And that's not actually what history means. You know, there are, there are a series of choices, there are a series of ways things have been done. And all of that is choices that we can make again. Eleanor, thank you so much. This has been amazing. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. This episode starred Eleanor Yanaga and was presented and produced by Luke Naylor Perrett. The series is made by me and Esme Bright, and we have help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Luke also interviewed Caroline Dodds Pennock on the Aztecs and Luke Turner on masculinity in World War II very recently. You can find both of those episodes in your feed. Until next time. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.